This is Creation Weekend, uh, but we are also starting a new teaching series this weekend that we're simply calling I've Been Wondering, where we together are going to look at some of the questions that, that we have or those around us have, understandably. Some of the questions we're going to be looking at will be, for example, in coming weeks, how, how do I overcome or handle stress and anxiety in my life? And our days are filled with both of those a lot. We'll be asking, why would a loving God allow such suffering and pain in the world? Additionally, we'll be looking together at how can I determine God's will in my life? How do I do that? I hope you can be here in coming weeks, but today we're going to begin with a question that's connected to God's work in this world. And I imagine most of you have heard the tale Uh, about a terrible storm that came into a town. And local officials sent out an emergency warning that the the riverbanks would soon overflow, flood, the waters would come into nearby homes. And so they ordered everyone to evacuate immediately. But there was a very religious man who had heard the warning and decided to stay. And he said to himself, I'm going to trust God. And, And if I'm in danger, God will send a divine miracle to save me. Well, not long after that, neighbors came by his house, pulled up before it and said, hey, there's room in our car. We're leaving now. Jump in with us. Let's get out of here. But again, the man declined and said, no, I'm going to trust that God will save me. The floodwater started rising higher and higher, flooded his living room. Eventually, he had to go up to the second floor. He looked out his window. Police motorboat came by and saw him. They came up to his house and said, come out. We'll rescue you. Jump in the boat. And again, the man declined and said, no, don't waste your time on me. If I need to be saved, God will save me. And the flood waters continued to rise higher and higher. Eventually, the man had to go on his rooftop. A helicopter came by, and, and the rope ladder got dropped down to him. A rescue officer came down and said, grab my hand. Let me lead you out of this. The man still refused. Folded his arms and said, no, I'm going to trust that God will save me. Shortly after that, the flood waters wiped out his house. The house broke apart. The man was swept away in the flood. And he drowned. And and when standing before God, the man asked God, I I put all my faith in you. Why didn't you come and save me? And God said, "I, I did, my child. I sent you a warning. I sent you a car. I sent you a motorboat. I sent you a helicopter. Why didn't you recognize me? And I wanted to share that familiar story Because I think it speaks to expectations, specifically expectations that we might have of how God will work in our life. I know there have been many preachers over the years that have encouraged their audiences to expect a miracle every day. And and that can be a great encouragement. If you define a miracle as experiencing God's presence, his encouragement, his provision in some way, yes, expect that. But it means something different if by a miracle we are saying literally what a miracle means, a contravening of the laws of nature. Should we expect that kind of thing every day? You know, I know people entertain a number of different ideas about how God works in our day. And and so it's understandable that many of you, I would imagine, directly or indirectly, have asked the question, which is a question we're considering together this weekend. How does God kind of typically, normally work, intervene in the world today? 
And as, as we're going to say each message of this series, and this is a far greater question than we can adequately address today. And in fact, I, I would guess this message today, it might actually raise more questions than it answers. And, and that might not be a bad thing. But, but let's start off by doing this. Can, let's start off w- with what we might be expecting in life with God. What might we be expecting? I mean, for example, we read through Scripture, read through the New Testament, you come to the book of Acts, and you read in Acts chapter 2 about Pentecost, and you read other biblical passages that describe these powerful, miraculous expressions of God's presence. So, so can God and does God still act in those miraculous ways in our day? Yes, and, and we would say confidently, absolutely. But, but I'll tell you, those accounts might lead us to expect that God will commonly intervene in that way in each of our lives, like daily. We, we might even expect in some kind of way that God is something kind of a sa- as a safety net in our life. Meaning that if I kind of jump off a metaphorical building, I, I expect God to always intervene and to miraculously cushion my fall, keep me from any harm. So, so that might be what we expect. Now what do we actually typically experience in this life? Typically, not the continual mighty miraculous victories of Acts 2. Typically. I mean, we experience really daily, day by day, we experience what the church is described as experiencing in, in the rest of the book of Acts. It, it's what Jesus actually described himself in John 16, 33, when, when Jesus said it very clearly, in this world, my children, you'll have what? Tribulation. You will have suffering. You will have trials. Now, if in your life, if you are expecting that that God will smooth all your pathways, remove every obstacle in your life, keep you from difficulty, you could understandably become quite discouraged or disheartened or disillusioned as you start experiencing tribulation. So today, I think it's appropriate for us to ask, how does God typically, normally, intervene, take action, work in the world today? And again, we, there's no way we can answer that question fully today. But there's a dimension of it I want to try to address. And to do that, we're going to look at a couple of passages in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to turn to the book of Mark with me or get it on your iPhone there, where it'll be in the Gospel of Mark, because it'll give us some insight, I think, in answering this question. And let me know... Let me let you know ahead of time. It's going to be of a bit of a roundabout journey, all right, as we go through this. So let's turn together. We're in Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to pick it up. In, in Mark chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 30. And friends, this is a word of God. And we read there. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God What does it look like? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Now just pause here for a second. If you're wondering, is the mustard seed actually the the smallest seed that we know of? It's not. But Jesus isn't trying to make some kind of broad scientific statement here, but rather he's referring to the smallest seed that was commonly planted in the Palestinian fields of his own day, speaking in their language. 
He goes on to say this then in verse 32. Yet when that seed is sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, and it puts out large branches. The branches are 10 to 12 feet in width. So that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. All right, so we ask then, so, so what is Jesus saying here? I mean, I think this, as the parable hints here, one of the realities of the kingdom of God on earth is this. I mean, the prophets and, and writers of the Old Testament, they didn't have this fully revealed to them. So the people of Jesus' day didn't even fully understand it. But this is what he's speaking of. Simply this. God's kingdom does not typically come grandly or extravagantly, but expands through very humble, apparently insufficient beginnings. I want to read that again. God's kingdom does not typically come grandly or extravagantly, but expands through very humble, apparently insufficient beginnings. I think that's what he's speaking of here. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting, right after Jesus tells this parable of the mustard seed in the Gospel of Luke, right after that, it, Luke records Jesus telling the parable of the leaven about how a small amount of leaven, of yeast, when it's taken and even put in a great batch of flour, it will end up transforming slowly over time the entire batch. That this inauspicious, seemingly inadequate, small beginning that can bring total transformation. Like a tinier mustard seed that expands into a great tree and like a little bit of leaven in a great batch of flour. Jesus saying essentially in these words, understand this, that typically is how my kingdom grows. Make sense? Okay, so we then ask, so what then does that look like? Really, how does that impact or guide me, us, in understanding how, how God typically normally works in the world today? And actually, I, th I think we have a picture of this principle being applied in a story just a bit later, one page over in the Gospel of Mark. And I really want to have this be our central focus here. And we're going to walk through this passage together. And again, it will need to take some time to make the connection with what we're looking at today. But here's the context. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, if you want to turn there. So what's been happening up to Mark 6? Jesus has been kind of just finished teaching this series of parables about the kingdom of God, trying to explain to people what the kingdom's like. He continues ministering in this time, right before this. He calmed the storm on the sea. He healed a young girl who had died. He, he preached in the hometown of Nazareth, his own hometown where they rejected him. He sends out the 12 to minister. And then right on the heels of that, he receives word that his cousin, his forerunner, John the Baptist, had, had just been beheaded by Herod Antipas. And this is what we read in verse 32. And they, Jesus, his disciples, they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. That sounds like the right place to be, doesn't it? After this? I mean, if you try to imagine, Jesus had just been ministering faithfully, teaching about this revolutionary kind of kingdom serving, healing. And the whole time he's walking through that, he is literally in a battle. He's a battle against, for one, spiritual forces, against the religious leaders who were against him, against the masses who rejected him. He was battling against his own hometown who didn't want him. He even battled his own family who was coming around saying, this guy's crazy, we gotta get him out of here. Jesus had been walking through that and then he hears his cousin, his friend, John, had been beheaded. Can you imagine how you'd be feeling? I, I, I would guess we'd feel like getting away, just maybe to a desolate place by ourselves. 
Just a space, time, relief, you know? Look at verse 33. Now many saw Jesus and the disciples going. They recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns. They got there ahead of them. <laughs> and again, this, this wasn't a group of like 10 people or 50 or 100. This was a crowd from all the towns, about 10 to 15,000 people. And verse 34, and when Jesus, I imagine exhausted, went ashore, what did he see? A massive crowd. And I'm trying to imagine that moment. In that moment, I think we would have said something like, I, I, I just need some time to grieve. But Jesus didn't. In fact, friends, if you want a picture of what our God is like, if you want a picture of what Jesus is like, this is a great place to look, to look how we respond in this moment. Look at what it says. And Jesus had compassion on them because he looked at them like they were sheep without a shepherd. So understand, that is Jesus. That is the one we follow. He had compassion on them. And the story continues, verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to Jesus and said, this is a desolate place. The hour's late. Send them away, all this crowd. They get, go on them into the surrounding countryside villages. Have them buy themselves something to eat. And friends, that's the disciples. That, that's like us. It's enough of these crowds. I mean, Jesus, you, you give them plenty. You give them to yourself. Get them out of here. Let, they need to eat. <laughs> And I'll tell you, the disciples had it right. The crowds definitely needed to eat. They were hungry. But the disciples <laughs> didn't perceive rightly the solution. Because Jesus, he had to transform the disciples' expectations. He had to transform their expectations to how the feeding was going to come about. And it's expressed in this powerful phrase, verse 37. But Jesus answered them. Say it with me. You give them something to eat. I, I kind of picture it. You give them something to eat. Silence. Jesus, all right, guys. You give them something to eat. I, I know you see what's around here. It's so easy to skip by this phrase, but it is so significant, friends. And again, look at how the disciples respond when Jesus commands them to feed the crowd. Verse 37, they said to him, take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And you do kind of wonder in this, was Jesus just fed up or what was going on with Jesus right in this moment? And it's interesting, if you turn to the Gospel of John, John's account of this event, in John chapter 6, John says what was Jesus was doing. And John says simply this, John 6, 6, Jesus said all this to test them. It was a test. This was a test. When you look at all the miracles of Jesus up to this point in Mark, you start to see what's going on when you read through Mark. Because up to this point to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had really been doing all the work. Jesus had taught the people. Jesus had healed the people. Jesus raised people from the dead. The disciples, what they did, pretty much was, whoa, well done. That's well done. <laughs> and then Jesus sent them out to minister a bit. He had them go out. And now it's test time for them. And Jesus gives them, it's an impossible situation. He's confronted them with somewhere between 10 to 15,000 hungry people. It says there's 5,000 men. There would have been about that many more women and children. And he says, you feed them. So here's the test question. How are you going to feed them? Silence. And how the disciples answer. They, they say to Jesus, we don't have enough money. Ah, no, not the right answer. <laughs> okay, Jesus, all we, all we have are five loaves, two fish. No, wrong answer. So, so you look and say, what's the right answer here? What is Jesus looking for? And this is what we read in verse 38. Let's see. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, we got five loaves, two fish. 
And then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. Picture this. I want us to picture this. The, a massive field, 10 to 15,000 people, like a mini Woodstock, mini Woodstock. And all there in small groups in the field. All right? Start feeding them. You kind of imagine the scene. And he told them to sit down. Now, in the Greek, that phrase, sit down there, it's a formal term, like be seated at the banquet. Is really what it means in, in that culture in that day. Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven said a blessing, he broke the loaves, and he gave it to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided two fish among them all. Now understand this, if you picture the scene, pretty much from what we understand, it was still five small loaves of bread and two fish, just broken up into really tiny pieces. And imagine the disciples there thinking, like I would have appreciated, it's broken up, now what do we do? And you imagine in that moment, Jesus commanded them, did they have the kind of faith that believed that what they had in their hands could feed 10,000 people. And here's the thing. They apparently did. Because in this moment, however it took place, whatever it looked like, we don't know if they hesitated or not, but at some point they turned from Jesus with these baskets with barely anything in it, turned to the crowd and began handing it out. They, They took a risk of faith. And we read this in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Again, probably 10,000 people. Again, it's kind of interesting to note in this. As far as we know, the loaves and the fish were multiplied not at the moment Jesus prayed. But as the ministry was taking place. As it was being handed out. That was a great step of risk on the disciples' part. But it was a powerful work of God. All right, so we haven't walked through it. What are we to pull from this story? First, I want you to know this. Apart from the account of Jesus' resurrection, did you know this is the only miracle that's listed in all four Gospels? Apart from Jesus' resurrection, the only miracle listed in all four Gospels is this account of the feeding of 5,000. You think that kind of hints at the importance of this story for us? And added to that, notice this. In all, if you read through all four gospel accounts, if you can do later on, of this feeding of the 5,000, every one of them describes Jesus as taking the very same steps, as taking the bread, blessing it, breaking the loaves, and giving the bread. Now, do those four steps, those four verbs ring any bells of taking, blessing, breaking, giving? It's actually the same four steps that each of the gospel uses to describe Jesus' actions at the Last Supper. When Jesus instituted communion, the the Eucharist meal. Seems like nice trivia, so what? Friends, understand, that's more than a coincidence. Uh, Understand this, It, it seems that all four gospel writers, in part, they wanted us to connect Jesus' actions here in Mark chapter six with this meal with what Jesus provides in this meal for us, in his institution of this meal together, through communion. Okay, hold on to that thought, we're gonna come back to it. But again, this all takes, tells us, again, it, it tells us, we read this, okay, what is taking place here it is far more than just a miracle of provision of meal. That the gospel writers, they want us to know that there, there's something bigger going on here. That's why they all include it. There's something kind of being declared, being set in place here. And, and we then ask, oh, so what's being declared? What's set in place in Mark 6? And, and for one, it is this central point. 
Jesus is the Christ, and he is all-powerful. He alone can provide spiritual sustenance, friends. I mean, do, do you want true life now and eternally? I'll tell you, Jesus is the only source of that. And, and that is the heart of this story. It's saying, this is who Jesus is. Okay, so, so is there anything else being declared, kind of being set in place in this miracle story? And I think, yes. Here's what it is. An inauspicious, seemingly inadequate, small beginning that is bringing total transformation. To put it another way, what's happening in Mark 6 is a mustard seed's being planted. A little leaven is being placed. And if you're wondering, okay, I don't see, where's that? Look, verse 37. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. I mean, they didn't know what to do. You, you think of that moment. What were their expectations in that moment? Well, they wanted to send the people away. If anything, if they thought by any means God is going to do something here, going to provide some kind of solution, they thought Jesus will do it. God will take care of this somehow. That's what he does. And Jesus instead says, you give them something. And then he does this. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave the bread to his disciples so that they could give it to those who were hungry. Catch this. I mean, Jesus' words to his disciples, you give them something to eat. Friends, small verse, that hints at the way the kingdom will be expressed and grow after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. How will God's kingdom be expressed and grow? It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. It's like this. You give them something to eat. You give them something. From that, we look at this and we ask our question again. How will God typically take action in his creation? You give them something. In fact, flip back just to the left to the Gospel of Matthew. It's a very well-known last chapter, Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus' words to his disciples there. And this is what we read in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came to his disciples and he said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to whom? Me. Me. And, and Jesus' followers say, you think they hear that and they start to think, right, right on. Oh, so let's move out, Jesus. We want your kingdom. So Jesus, build your kingdom. I'm, you transform our city. You draw my friends to yourself. You, you bring comfort to those who are suffering. You bring food to the malnourished. You, Jesus, we're ready for it. And Jesus, apparently at that moment, says, well, I'm not done talking. Because verse 19 says, and so therefore, now you go and make disciples of all nations. And behold, as you do it, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Here's the secret. It is you by the power of God. It is you. So Jesus would therefore say, you give them something to eat. Jesus' command, he implies in that, my, my followers, you can give them something to eat. You can feed them. I mean, the source of the feeding will be me. It will be God. But the active agent, the ambassador of the kingdom, acting on the king's behalf, it's you. It is you, disciples of Jesus. God works through us, friends. Through us. Okay. I want to make sure we get this. So can we just get a bit more theological here for a moment? Just stay with me on this. When, when you read through the New Testament, one of the, uh, the Apostle Paul's in the early church's great battles was confronting the errors and, and dangers of, of a belief that was called Gnosticism. Maybe you've heard of it, but if you wonder, what is Gnosticism? Well, just kind of describe it simply. Gnosticism, it, it shunned the material world. 
which they believed was entirely evil. So they shunned the material world and they embraced only the spiritual realm. And, and understand this, Gnosticism is still around. It's been around for millennia, it is still around. You can still find it seeping into Christian thought today. And I'll tell you, here's one of the problems with Gnostic thought. It, it's simply that the material realm, creation, although it's been marred, and really by our own brokenness and fallenness, creation is still used by God. Our God largely works through the material, through that which we can kind of touch, see, feel, that, that which has physical substance. Like, for example, the Word of God. For example, the, the body of Christ. Uh, we human followers of Jesus, the, the, the church. For example, through the sacraments, through the water of baptism, through bread and cup. How interesting, for 2,000 years, Jesus said, this is what I want you to do until you do it again with me in my kingdom when I come. Taking bread and cup. How interesting that when we want Jesus, just Jesus do something out there like the disciples, Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. When we say to Jesus in our own day, just do something spiritual out there, okay? Take bread, break it as I did. Take cup together. I, because I work spiritually in a way beyond our understanding, I feed you spiritually as you receive this meal. Now, now we're not receiving communion this weekend, and I hope in some way your heart is like, oh, why not? <laughs> we, we should come with that kind of longing. And every time we have it here, when we receive communion, to remind us, it is the high point of our gathering. That again, God by his wonder works through this physical stuff, through bread and cup and, and beloved, through us. Through us. He chooses to work with us and through us. And our God understand, our God has expressed and continues to express his presence to accomplish his purposes commonly, typically, through that which is material. Do you want the greatest example of this? His name is Jesus, and the Word became flesh. The Word became material. God became flesh and blood. <laughs> he heals through what is substantive. <laughs> we aren't Gnostics. So therefore, we might pray. You might pray, oh God, God would you minister to me? And, and God would say, for, for one, not solely, but for one, he would say, oh yes, Drink in my word. Come to the table. Receive the bread and cup. Gather with my people. Rub shoulders with them. Be encouraged by them. And I, I, I just, I so don't want this to be just some kind of detached principle for us. So it, let me apply it a bit more. Because I kind of have a pastoral concern in this. That, that when we pray, as we rightly do, for the kingdom of God to come, for, for God's presence and power to be made manifest around us. That's what we pray, don't we? And, and we want that. I'll tell you though, I, I think as we pray that, I think that we typically expect or hope that God, Jesus, would kind of just move by his power to just bring comfort in some kind of way, to provide where there's a tangible need, to miraculously change the circumstances in a situation, just to do something. And, and I think that's typically how we pray for others. Okay, God, do something. <laughs> but I'll tell you, as Jesus expressed here in Mark 6, our God's expectation typically, normally, 
Now, now that his kingdom has come to earth, now that his Holy Spirit has been given to us, is that when, friends, when something needs to be changed in our world, when comfort or guidance needs to be given, when God's presence needs to be evidenced, the way our God typically normally shows himself in the world is through his followers, through the children of Jesus, declaring and living out the kingdom, being the physical kind of incarnate expression of Jesus himself. So if that's the case, can I put this more bluntly? I, I, I believe Jesus would say to you and me, child of God, south you, get out of your chairs. Break free from your fear, from your sense of inadequacy, from your apathy, from, and, and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, who is working through you, you start giving the people around you something to eat. You feed them, because Jesus says and means, by my power you can, beloved. You can. And, and I would imagine Jesus would say to us, I know what you're thinking. You, you were thinking... I'm not that gifted. I don't see that much fruit. Nothing dramatic really happens when I do. Jesus, I'd rather you just do the work, Jesus. And the Lord of the universe reminds us, I've realized that, but remember this. Remember what my kingdom is like? A little mustard seed planted becomes a tree, a little bit of leaven in the whole transformation over time. And Jesus, I think, would say to us, I know what you want. You want big, you want grand, you want dramatic, don't you? But typically, normally, here's how I work in my creation. Here's how my kingdom spreads. It's through you. It's through my people, the body of Jesus, expressing Christ in our world in these inauspicious, seemingly inadequate, small beginnings that can bring total transformation. Hear again what the Apostle Paul wrote of us. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Paul wrote this. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's personalize that a bit more. Now you are the hands, feet, heart, hug, love, comfort of Christ. And you're individually members of this. You are that expression in the world. So we on earth, we are Jesus' body. We're his expression. And I'd ask this, do you, do you, friends, do you think we need some perspective adjustment on this one? I've been asking that myself. Do, do I need it? So, so can I leave us with kind of a one-word challenge again? Friends, risk. Risk. Because I'll tell you this. Do you long to see God's presence more evident in your life? You will not see the provision of God. You will not experience the interceding power of God. You will not identify the filling of the Spirit in your life if all you do in your life are the things that you can accomplish by your own power and wisdom alone. And and I'll tell you that I think that's where most of us live, in that safe, comfortable spot where we don't have to risk much. And, And so we therefore think, man, I haven't seen God's presence much expressed in my life. And friends, it could very well be because you've never had to lean on him to provide for you when your own capabilities are insufficient. So will you step out and risk? Can I just leave you with a question? What is one thing you are hoping 
or praying, God will accomplish or do in the life of someone around you? What, what is one thing you're hoping or praying God will accomplish or do in the life of someone around you? Maybe it's a need they've shared. Just consider. Jesus might be saying to you right now, you go take care of it. You're my answer to their need. You might be the one. What if we started praying day, just daily? Okay, Father, as I walk into this day, give me eyes to see where I literally need to be your hands, your feet, your comfort, your hug. What would it be? Can we pray to that end? Will you pray with me? And so, Father, <laughs> in ways we'd be just as stunned as the disciples as you turn to us and say, okay, my people, my children, you, you feed the people around you. So I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would give us both a boldness to seek to do that, grace as we're doing it, perseverance when the fruit doesn't seem as dramatic or grand as we long for. And Father, that even in that, we, we would see you so that the world truly would be drawn increasingly. Not our city, our, our neighborhoods would be drawn to Jesus. We pray for that, Father. And ask it in the authority of Jesus and all God's people again say, Amen. Amen. Amen.